welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Advice for Saving the World, C.S. Lewis on Pursuing Virtue in Chaotic Times by Matt Carpenter. To borrow from the author of Hebrews, time fails, me, time fails me to mention the other great hopeful dystopias that, that exist. Particularly, I would recommend the Louisiana native Walker Percy's two novels, Love and the Ruins and The Thanatos Syndrome, both of which are very just, it's hard to describe what they're like except to say they're really good and Percy is definitely humorous in his description. Nevertheless, the greatest and most hopeful dystopian novel of the last 100 years has to be C.S. Lewis' That Hideous Strength. So my copy here is rather old. It has no cover anymore, but it still works. Like P.D. James, Lewis's strength does not, does not lie in presentation of sheer bleakness and misery. Such widespread despair is found, as is found in 1984, or The Road, is practically unrelatable to us. This projection, that is Lewis's projection, is much more likely and consequently much more concerning. On September 4th, 2021, David Marshall at thestream.org wrote this, quote, The academy has been corrupted by political ideology. Cancel culture runs rampant. Scientists conduct gain-of-function research that threatens death on a global scale. Once quiet cities are destroyed by planned riots, which the media describes as mostly peaceful, Merlin comes back from the dead. Wait a minute, Merlin what? I thought you were reading the news. I was set to hear you mention Black Lives Matter and murder hornets, but Merlin? Was that on Fox or CNN? Actually, the whole first paragraph occurs in a dystopia written 76 years ago. That is, of course, that hideous strength. That hideous strength is the third of what is commonly called Lewis's Space Trilogy, although he considered it a Heavens Trilogy or a Cosmic Trilogy. The word space smacks of emptiness, which, while in his biblically informed view of the heavens or the cosmos, the cosmos is a place filled with life, although much of that we cannot see with human eyes. The first two novels, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, take place in the heavens on the planet Mars, for Out of the Silent Planet, and Venus, on Paralandra, which is Paralandra. In these novels, there is an angelic deity, a lesser god called an Oyarsa, who is put in charge of each planet. The main character in the first two novels is Elwyn Ransom, a philologist professor who is, in the first novel, kidnapped and forced to go to Mars with a couple of wicked men who want to sacrifice him to the creatures there. In Paralandra, Ransom is summoned by the Oryarsa, and he volunteers to go to Venus or Paralandra at the request. 
Ransom helps to rescue the Eve-like character who is tempted to act contrary to the commands of the Oyarsa by one of the men who, is ki who kidnapped him in the first book. The man's name was Weston. So Ransom battles Weston for several days and is successful. When he returns, he looks younger and stronger. So, if you want to find the Fountain of Youth, just find a way to be summoned to Paralandra and go fight a wicked dragon at the risk of your life. And, you know, maybe if you're victorious, you'll come back good as new. That brings us to that hideous string. The main characters in this novel are Mark and Jane Studdock. Mark is a professor at Bracton College of Edgestow University, based on Durham College and Oxford University. His wife, Jane, was pursuing her doctoral dissertation on the poet John Donne, but since their marriage, she has mostly neglected her dissertation. The first line of the book finds her quoting the Book of Common Prayer's marriage ceremony, specifically the third reason for marriage, quote, Matrimony was ordained for the mutual society, help, and comfort that one ought to have of the other, end quote. Jane mumbles in disgust because this is precisely what she does not feel she has from her husband. She had dreams and blames her marriage for killing those. Mark, on the other hand, is a ladder-climbing professor who neglects his wife, only having eyes for what he can achieve next. He is also a member of the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, abbreviated NICE, or NICE. Lewis has a sense of humor also. NICE is located at Bellberry. Jane begins having nightmares of a talking head, which leads her to talk to a lady named Mrs. Dimble, who is the wife of one of her former tutors. The Dimbles are losing their home to the land being sold by, by Bracton College to Nice and are moving to a manor at St. Anne's. St. Anne's is a manor house in a nearby village. Jane eventually moves also to the same manor where she meets the many colorful characters who live there, most notably Dr. Ransom himself. She is re resistant at first to the ethos of St. Anne's. They all, that is, all the people work together equally. <clears throat> so Jane wonders, for example, why she ha is on the same level as Ivy Mags. Ivy Mags was a former maid that Jane and Mark had employed, and she, Jane doesn't understand why this former maid has the same level of say in what goes on at St. Anne's as she does, because Jane is almost a doc uh, she almost has her doctorate. But also, she realizes that there is a hierarchy there to which she must submit. So, it achieves one of the unique elements of Christian government in that there is both a democratic and hierarchical element. So, democratic does not mean everybody votes. It doesn't have to mean everybody votes. The best of medieval monarchies were both democratic and hierarchical. You had better access to the king in medieval feudal society. Even if you were a peasant, you had better access to the king than you do today to your state's governor or even probably to your local mayor. Let that sink in. One exchange summarizes the difference in Jane's perspective with that of most of the others at St. Anne's. Quote, 
Jane speaking here. Did you understand his, that is the director's, ransom, his view on marriage? My dear, this is Mrs. Dimble now, the director is a very wise man, but he is a man after all, and an unmarried man at that. Some of what he says, or what the masters say about marriage, does seem to me to be a lot of fuss about something so simple and natural it ought not be need saying at all. But I suppose there are young women nowadays who need to be told it. You haven't got much use for young women, I see, James said. Well, perhaps I'm unfair, Mrs. Dimble says. Things were easier for us. This is the part I want you to hear. We were brought up on stories with happy endings and on the prayer book. We always intended to love, honor, and obey, and we had figures, and we wore petticoats, and we liked waltzes. So, essentially, the epitome of femininity is what Mrs. Dimble is talking about there. We read stories that had happy endings and the prayer book. All this time, Mark is being drawn towards another group, one more sinister and diabolical. We first encounter Nice when we are trying, when they are trying to purchase land belonging to Bracton College. The land is supposed to be where the wizard Merlin is buried, and Bellberry or Knife wants to bring Merlin back. Soon after Mark joined Nice, he is warned by another professor to get out immediately. The next day, that professor is found murdered. Nice has its own law enforcement headed by a fairy Hardcastle. Fairy is the, the nickname. But Fairy Hardcastle, a hardened masculine woman who is sadistic and enjoys torturing women in particular. While it's never stated uh, openly, it is clear that Hardcastle is a lesbian. Other characters of Nice are Lord Feverstone, who we originally met in Out of the Silent Planet, John Fever, the spokesman, and Francois Alcassan, a.k.a. The Head. Alcassan was a scientist who was murdered. The scientists at Nice then take his head and essentially through the, the, the benefits of technology, they preserve the head. And they cause, and the head will at still, even though it's just the head, the head will speak to them. It speaks because, particularly, it is indwelt by certain demonic beings. The leaders of Nice believe they are helping the world, but they actually plan to control the world. When George Orwell reviewed this book, he said this about the organization. All superfluous life is to be wiped out. All natural forces tamed. The common people are to be used as slaves and vivisection subjects by the ruling caste of scientists who even see their way to conferring immortal life upon themselves. Man, in short, is to storm the heavens and overthrow the gods or even to become a god himself. End quote. By the way, Orwell really liked that hideous strength, except, he said, for all those supernatural things that just really ruin the novel. <laughs> Which I guess is as high a praise as you can expect from a, a literary atheist. So, he, but he liked it. 
The vision of NICE is simple. They want to remake the world into a group of enlightened, engineered, further evolved humans. Their goals are to get the people of Britain to give them more control. So they want the people to surrender, to voluntarily surrender their control through manufactured riots. So if you manufacture a riot, then the people are afraid. When they're afraid, what do people do? They'll give up their rights in a heartbeat for greater security and comfort. Once given authority, NICE will, further, will then further implement their goals. They are connected to other similar organizations at major colleges throughout the world, and each one is planning to implement rule by science. Here you have Francis Bacon's New Atlantis in the 20th century. This was Bacon's dream. Now, I'm not saying that Bacon was just, just like those at Bellberry, but Bacon's heavenly vision of life on Earth when you try to implement that, you get nice. You get what they're doing. This was written after World War II, and Lewis saw what was coming. Having won the war, both Britain and the United States believed the war was won through the power of technology, and that further technological developments would save mankind. While not the German philosophy of Adolf Hitler and others precisely, it is a kinder, gentler version of it. The iron fist of certainly, of course, inside the velvet glove. This is technocracy. Government by technological achievement and know-how. And it is through technology that they have allowed the demons to rule through the head. So this head is nothing more than a medium for the evil one to get through and make his plans known. So I want you to consider, without me supplying the answer, what medium or what media, which is the plural form, what media do we have that transfers potentially the message of the demonic into our homes and into our individual lives. Talking heads in the box. <laughs> you, you, you said it, not me. <clears throat> Which I essentially all but said it, but still. But Lewis understood this. Now, if you want to know the background if you want to know just the principles themselves that drive that hideous strength, you must read The Abolition of Man, which is Lewis's three lectures given to an academic group that were very well received. It's Abolition of Man is a thin book, but it is also perhaps the most dense book that I've ever read of Lewis. And thankfully, Dr. Michael Ward, who is just who came out with, with a wonderful work from years ago called Planet Narnia, which, is that, which explains the, the, uh, the reason and how Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia to correspond actually to the seven planets of medieval cosmology. If you say, what's all that? That'll be for another lecture at another time. But Ward has written a guide to the abolition of man. It's just come out 
I, I cannot remember what the name of it is. I think something like After Humanity is, I believe, the title. But the abolition of man explains in plain teaching form what Lewis is talking about in that hideous strength. Back to the lecture. Uh, here's a quote. Oh, yes. You are ready, are you not, Mr. Studdock? You have explained it to him then, said Strake. He turned to Mark, and the moonlight in the room was so bright that Mark could now partially recognize his face. The harsh furrows emphasized by that cold light and shade. Do you really mean to join us, young man? asked Strake. Strake, by the way, is a... Uh, he is an ordained clergyman in the Church of England who is working for the devil. So Lewis was under no pretensions that everyone in the church is on the good side. Back to the quote. There is no turning back once you have set your hand to the plow. And there are no reservations. The head has sent for you. Do you understand the head? You will look upon the one... Now, now listen, this is straight quoting, and he is inverting Scripture seriously here. You will look upon the one who is killed and is still alive. The resurrection of Jesus in the Bible was a symbol. Tonight you shall see what is symbolized. It is the real man at last, and it claims all our allegiance. What the devil are you talking about, said Mark. The tension of his nerves distorted his voice in a hoarse, blustering cry. My friend is quite right, said Philostrato. Our head is the first of the new men, the first that lives beyond animal life. As far as nature is concerned, he is already dead. If nature had her way, his brain would now be moldering in the grave. But he will speak to you within the hour, and a word in your ear, my friend, you will obey his orders. But who is it? said Mark. It is Francois Alcassan, said Philostrato. Now this goes on and he says, what? Alcassan's dead. How can that happen? And he said, no, he may be dead, but he is ruled, he is now controlled. He speaks for what are called the macrobes. He said, what are the macrobes? The macrobes are something that's higher than animal life. And he said, you mean like, like dogs? And, and again, I'm summarizing here. He said, you, he said no. I'm, Philostrato said, animal life includes humans. It's something above animal life. So they know. The people at Belberry know that what is controlling this talking head is not human. Mark is eventually driven to almost madness. He is placed in a room where everything is inverted and it drives him crazy. The pinnacle of the initiation reads this way, quote, On the floor lay a large crucifix, almost life-size, a work of art in the Spanish tradition, ghastly and realistic. We have half an hour to pursue our exercises, said Frost, looking at his watch. Then he instructed Mark to trample on it and insulted in other ways. Though we must choose, Mark comes to a new thought. Quote, Christianity was nonsense, but one did not doubt that the man had lived and had been executed thus by the bellberry of those days. So in other words, Mark's saying, 
the people who killed Jesus are just like the people of Belberry right now. Those who are in power who want to remove the one who's standing in their way. Back to the to the quote. And that and that, as he suddenly saw, explained why this image, that is the, the the crucifix, though not itself an image of the straight or normal, yet was in opposition to crooked Bellberry. It was a picture of what happened when the straight met the crooked. A picture of what the crooked did to the straight. What it would do to him if he remained straight. It was, in a more emphatic sense than he had yet understood, a cross. So Mark is told, in order to complete his initiation, to be fully brought in to the powers of Belberry, step on, stamp on the cross, stomp on the cross. Mark refuses, which begins a process of change. He gives up ever coming out alive. But even though he's given up on coming out alive, there are other plans for Mark's life. And he has no idea what deliverance will come. The plans of Belberry continue apace. They want to find Merlin, who will bring their plans to fruition. I, I will not give away the ending, because it's best savored on your own. I will just say that the writing of this book is spectacular, the philosophy superb, and you will find yourself stopping at various times just thinking about how accurate a statement is, probably though you've never thought about it precisely that way. So how then can this be considered this book be considered advice for saving the world? It focuses primarily on one couple. Although the supporting characters are both well developed and play a significant role. We often get and I've already referred to this type of application, but we often get the idea that the world is saved through major significant and large scale plans. That's what NICE is trying to do. They're trying to save the world by bringing their plans into being. Christians sadly follow the same advice and create large-scale Take Back America plans and slogans, usually through getting the Fox News candidate of the day elected. But for Lewis, we don't save the world through campaigns, large-scale plans, or anything like that. The world is saved one person at a time. Now that sounds simplistic. Just wait. Mark and Jane are in a difficult marriage. Difficult because they are pursuing different ends. Jane wants a life on her own, outside her home. One where she is lauded and recognized apart from her husband. Her growth and virtue begins with the dreams she has. And, and by dreams, I don't mean the aspirations. I mean when she starts having dreams about this talking head. Those dreams. That's when her growth and virtue starts. And one person at a time, she is eventually led to Dr. Ransom. She is not open to virtue at first. But over time, she embraces the truth, especially truth that she would rather evade. She could leave St. Anne's, but she knows if she leaves, her life would be in danger. Because at one point, she is actually captured and tortured by Fairy Hardcastle. So she knows that they don't want her around. 
While not agreeing with the truth at first, she is open, as the aforementioned conversation with Mrs. Dimble illustrates. Jane wrestles with submission. She thinks she is wrestling just with her husband and with the effects her marriage has had on her life, but she discovers she's actually wrestling with God. Gradually, she sees the natural order created by God is a gift to be embraced and allows her to become what God made her to be, not become something different than she desires. What God has in store for her as a woman in this particular marriage is greater than what she could hope to be outside of the bounds and outside of the limits that God has given. When we embrace the limits God gives us, we actually are able to supersede our own plans for our life. Mark, in the dark recesses of Belberry, has his own conversion. His great downfall is that he fears being on the outside. He is willing to do whatever it takes to make it into the inner ring. That phrase, the inner ring, is the title of one of Lewis's more famous essays, and I would say certainly read it, especially if you have aspirations. You should read the inner ring. Because Lewis talks about the dangers of trying to get into the inner ring, and that's exactly what Mark does. Because of his desire to gain greater access, Mark is the pawn of nice, willing to do their bidding. Over time, he begins to see the rampant disregard nice has for human life. Murder is no issue for them. Riots, torture, as long as they further their goals, they'll do it. Pragmatism in the service of scientism. His gradual revelations of the wicked inconsistency of nice cause him to shrink back. Then, when he is confronted by the crucifix and told to stomp on it, he can't. It's not like he has this majestic, I know I'm now a Christian moment. No. It's one step at a time. He is turned, and he doesn't know why. He can't explain why. He just knows, I can't step on this crucifix. I cannot step on this man, even though it's just an image of one who is on the cross, because he understands he would be destroying something in his own soul if he did that. It's not miraculous, but still, he cannot do it. And that reveals to us something about conversion. Conversion is God's work. Only He can give people a desire for truth, both for the Mark and the Jane Studdocks of the world. As one writer said, Lewis believed that all who desire and search for the truth fully will eventually come to Christ. Think about that. Everyone who truly desires the truth and will pursue it, and who pursues it with all their hearts, they will be drawn to Christ because the desire for truth is a desire for the God who created the truth. Nevertheless, what about the dystopian picture presented in that hideous strength? Conversion is great, we say, but it doesn't stop the evil plans of principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, does it? That depends. 
In this book we see, aside from Ransom and Merlin, we see ordinary people. They're not perfect, but they are to varying degrees courageous, just, wise, and charitable. These virtues are demonstrated at just the right time, when it is needed the most. The people are where they are supposed to be. There's no superhero necessary. Even Merlin, in this novel, is controlled by one of the Oyarsa, one of the angelic beings. That's where we can have the greatest hope. The victory of St. Anne's over Belberry is not by power or by might, but by the power of Christ. At other points, the Oyarsa tells Ransom that because the evil men reached into their realm in the past and out of the silent planet and Paralandra, because these evil men breached into their territory, they, they broke down the wall. So the good Oyarsa may now come and return the favor on the earth. Lewis is showing us <clears throat> that eventually the wicked bring destruction down upon themselves. They overplay their hands and they overplay their hands every time. You can guarantee Satan is never content. He's never satisfied. There's always grasping for more. When they crucified Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, they did not know what they were doing, or else they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They don't know when to stop. They didn't know when to stop then. They don't know when to stop now. This is not to say that we merely stand down far from it. Evil is real, and we are called to stand against evil. But you don't have to play Don Quixote and search for battles to pursue virtue. But God will use us in ways we never expect. God accomplishes His victory using everyday saints where they live and work. You don't have to move and go to a larger city, to a better place, to do something else to be used by God. As we pursue virtue, God will use us to accomplish things we didn't consider. If you're willing to do whatever He commands, follow wherever He leads, He will take you places and put you with people you never anticipated. And St. Anne's is a wonderful example of that. There's people from all walks of life who are at this one manor house, including one wonderful bear. See, Ransom, in the novel, he has gained great knowledge of the path, or just great knowledge from the Almighty, and he actually learns how to train this bear. And he trains him, and the bear is just a wonderful character. That's the best way I know how to say it. And he plays a role. So I'll, I won't spoil. Okay, I'll tell you his name, Mr. Bultitude. And if that makes you smile, please read the book. You may never see how God is using you in this life. But if you are faithful, you may be a part of greater spiritual victory, of unraveling more plots of the enemy than you ever imagined. So is there hope in dystopia? Yes. This world will not always be a place of sin and suffering. 
God has made us bearers of His image and placed us in the world for which Jesus Christ died. Not just the world, I would add, but actually the cosmos, which is the word that is interpreted world in John 3.16. For God so loved the cosmos. Kind of gives you greater hope for the cosmic trilogy. You may not change the world, but as you pursue Christ daily, He will use you to show the He will use you to show the world what His new creation will one day look like. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get together. Thank you for giving us wisdom through faithful men and women in the past. I pray that you would guide our steps in all that we do. May we always grow and pursue your calling. Through Christ we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.